Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? Curious about the science behind designing usable, safe, and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry, academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge, Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. This is episode 285. We're recording this episode live on June 1st, 2023. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? You know what, Barry? I'm not doing too well because for the second week in a row, we don't have fun names. So come back, whoever you were, leaving fun names in the show notes. <laughs> you just can't get the anonymous stuff nowadays, can't you? No. Hey, we do have a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be discussing how blind trust in enhancement technologies or augmentation technologies, whatever you want to call it, encourages risk-taking even if the tech is a sham. Later on, we'll be answering some questions from the human factors community, such as product management. Is it cannibalizing UX research? Should you take money for a dysfunctional project and doing pro, pro bono work while job searching? But first, we have some programming notes. You know what? I usually ask these for these at the end of the show. But if you enjoy the type of stuff that we do, if you want to help support the show, there's a couple things that you can do. Wherever you're at right now, you can leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. You can always tell your friends about the show. So tell your friends around the water cooler about the show. Help it grow that way. And three, if you have the financial means to, you want to help support the show, there's a Patreon. We have it. You can support us. Just a buck gets you in the door. Anything helps. I usually ask that at the end, but I figured I'd throw it here at the top of the show. Barry, I do have to know, though, what's going on with the latest over at 1202? So at 1202, we've still got the interview with Ben Peachy up. And that is doing really well in terms of people really wanting to understand their insights about what make what drives him and what is inspiring his leadership of the Chad Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors in his role as chief as CEO. And then we've got a new one coming out next week, but I shall leave that under covers until it goes live. Ooh, I'm excited. That was quite the tease, Barry. Thank you. All right, let's get into it, shall we? That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, what do we have this week? So this week we are looking at blind trust in enhancement technologies encourages risk taking, even if the tech is a sham. So a recent study, recent study has suggested that people who expect their performance to be enhanced by augmentation technologies such as AI or exoskeletons 
and engage in riskier decision-making. The researchers found that strong belief in improvement based on a fake system can alter their decision-making. In the study, participants were led to believe that an AI-controlled brain-computer interface would enhance their cognitive abilities whilst playing the Columbia card task game, when in fact the augmentation provided no real benefit. Almost all of the participants thought the augmentation helped them do better, leading them to make riskier decisions. The hype surrounding these technologies skews people's expectations and can lead individuals to make dangerous decisions. AI-based technologies that enhance users common in professions like firefighting, factory work, and could soon be available to knowledge workers. The placebo effect can make users feel overconfident in these technologies without fully understanding their limits and their benefits. To ensure the effectiveness of new technologies beyond the hype, placebo-controlled studies are necessary for accurate evaluation and validation to tell, the, uh, tell apart the snake oil from real innovation. Profession-wide overconfidence could lead to real consequences. So thorough, thorough studies like these, practitioners in human factors can help and ensure that such risks are limited and technologies are understood for their real benefits and risks. So Nick, what are your thoughts on your AI basically making you better, feel better than you actually are? Is that giving you more confidence to take more risks in our podcast? Yes. <laughs> guilty i won't say how but i'm guilty of that <laughs> look this story is interesting on a couple levels right this really highlights the need for communication around the capabilities and limitations to manage some of these user expectations like when you think about the general population and what they think about chat gpt for example or some ai automated system they might think it's agi and it's not general but it's not general artificial intelligence. It's a large language model that predicts the next stuff based on previous. And so being very clear about what it is and what it isn't is really important. So I think this highlights that need, especially when you start looking beyond AI, when you start looking at things like we talked about in the pre-show, exoskeleton technologies, prosthetics, implants, those types of things where it feels like it should make you a superhuman in some ways. But maybe it doesn't. And that risk-taking behavior then comes in. Obviously, this is where human factors plays a huge role. Incorporating that user feedback expectations loop into the design process can help mitigate some of those risks. The other thing is that, for me, this is another big call for policy and regulations with AI. And and even, even beyond AI, there's a lot of <laughs> there can be a lot of consumer or user protections put into place to help with these type of products that are meant to, in some cases, when you mention things like snake oil, deceive the end user into believing that it is it is supposed to work. So that's my thoughts on it. Barry, what where are your thoughts with everything? Have you collected them? Not really, no. Just what I think. <laughs> no, I get I see where they're coming from. There is a whole lot of stuff here around the way that we are perceiving or using not just AI technologies as a whole. They mentioned things like exoskeletons and things like that. It'd be quite easy to see, to use that as a real practical example of if you're using an exoskeleton all of the time to do lifting and things like that. You could easily fool yourself to think, actually I'm at home now. I could easily lift because I lift that sort of way to work all the time. I could lift that at home and actually lend yourself to injury, but fully the, the, it's about the amount of trust that you've got in what it is that you're doing. It's about being able to understand where the information is coming from in order to supplement your decision making. But again, when we talk about the example that they've given about using a, the, a card task, 
one of the things that we've said on this show quite a lot already, that one of the advantages of ChatGPT and the other LLMs is the ability to have a third person in the room, the ability to have a some something to bounce ideas off, to start you off, to get things going. It's like having that second opinion all of the time. And that's where I really value it because it just allows you to re actively reflect in what you're doing. But I've also seen, because I've now joined quite a few ChatGPT Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups and things like that. And what is worrying is the amount of people who think that it's a, it's an endpoint solution, that you mm. throw something in it and it gives you a polished answer. And you can see that in two respects. One is people asking, saying, oh, I want it to do this. How do I make it do it? It's like, you can't do that. It's, it is just a large language model. It doesn't, it doesn't create magic. But then the other one is when they get it to trip up and they're taking screenshots and mocking it and said, oh, look how stupid it is. It doesn't work. It's not meant to do that. That's not what it's about. So we have this false idea about what it's meant to be. And really this keys into one of the things you said. It's all about the hype, isn't it? And certainly at the moment we have this hype around AI just woken up to it. And But now we've gone so far the other way that it's going to take over the world. I was driving back from the office and listening to the radio and they were having a phone-in show. And literally, the it was about a prediction that had been made that things like ChatGPT were going to cause human extinction and getting people to ring in about it. And you're like, they had a professor on, a professor of AI, and he was basically saying what we're saying now, which is take it easy, just chill. It's not going to take over. It's not going to kill everybody. It's, it talks very cleverly. The one thing he did say, which I disagreed with to a certain extent, was the amount of it will, what an LM can do is put out a lot of false information, a lot of fake news and things like that. And I'm like, we've been doing that for years already. That's not new. Yes, it can probably get increase volume, but humans have been passing out disinformation for eons. So it's not that's not really a new thing. But in terms of, yeah, the end of the world, the apocalypse yet. Yeah, I, I want to jump in and talk about that point, though, because at least with that, there's at least because it talks at a rather sophisticated level compared to perhaps what some people are used to a chat program returning back. I think that is the danger when you pair it with that misinformation, right? If it gives you that misinformation and it's telling you confidently that is information and it's telling you in a way that it is creating an argument for that, then are you more likely to engage in a risky behavior because it told you to ingest rocks? Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that it can't do that, but I think this whole idea of we've been getting so people have been selling snake oil to us for years. It's it's not necessarily a an AI thing, solely uniquely an AI thing. It is just aping human behavior. So I don't think that means we're going to we're going to get to the apocalypse. But Let's take it back to the story itself before let's get away from the end of the world. Yeah. Hopefully yeah, the yeah. world's not, yeah. uh, certainly not for the next uh, 50 minutes. We could even start with the placebo. You just brought up placebo or snake oil, placebo, snake oil, I think going side by side. There's this placebo effect that's happening here. And this is what the study is suggesting is that there's this enhanced, this feeling that you are somehow empowered more than you would be when using other tools that with this human augment. And to be clear, this large blanket of human augmentation that we're talking about is not just AI. This is something as simple as a prosthetic that helps you helps give back a part of your life. If you were to lose a part of your body and have a replacement prosthetic, 
it could even happen with that. It could happen with some sort of implant that that I think a while on the go a while ago on the show we had Brian who was talking about having that person's eye implant turned off on them. Yeah. And even something like that where you might engage in riskier decisions because you have a visual implant or even a cochlear implant that augments you in some way that now with a cochlear implant you can hear cars as you're about to cross the road and maybe it doesn't have the same level of accuracy as i don't know maybe you i don't know there's use cases here but there's plenty of examples that we can go into i just want to talk about that they're using this placebo with respect to human augmentation it goes beyond ai yeah, it's interesting because what they're suggesting really is that the really what whenever we develop a new technology, we need to do a to do placebo based testing to truly understand what the the effect is that it's given you, the positive effect the technology has given you. And that's I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't I'm quite often pro technology and no, we don't need all the X, Y, Z, and this. But this I think has got quite a lot of merit in terms of we've always been unable or it's been difficult to quantify the advantages your whatever technology it is you're using and actually using a placebo effect to be able to quantify that i think is interesting just to look at technology use but the whole to then focusing on risk taking risk taking does take i guess many forms it, there are different types of risks that we have in life an example that we talked about briefly in, in the pre-show is, it, you know, as you said, it does need to be AI. We take risk now because we're using a satellite navigation software, be that online or other, that you, you would normally turn around and say, this journey of however many miles takes me 60, 70 minutes to do. But actually my sat-nav says I can do that in 50 minutes. And so I will time my, my arrival, say 55 minutes away, because that will get me there just in time. It also means I can fit in a loo break on the way, et cetera, et cetera. So that is risky decision-making because all it takes is one bad traffic accident, one bit of congestion or slightly bad weather, and you will be late for whatever it is that you're, that you're doing. And that is you having a higher, a greater risk appetite because you think you know more. And I think that's what it comes down to is you think that you've got greater ability. You think you've got more information, more knowledge, Therefore, you can make a, a better decision. And so therefore, you'll make a tighter decision, a riskier decision, which is really interesting. And I think it's true. I think there's, I think we do it, well, you said it straight away in your comments of being, yes, guilty all the time. And we do that with all of our, the fact that we drive cars to get from A to B or to get a taxi or whatever, rather than walking. It's because we're using technology because we want to get somewhere faster yeah. and we will make assumptions on risk. So, yeah. Yeah. Even in your like maps example, you know, that actually does give you more information. It gives you a probability window for when you'll arrive based on the time that you leave. Based on normal conditions, this is how, this is when you're going to get to that place. And that does give you some level of knowledge. And in some ways, that does lower that tolerance for risk when you have that piece of information. And I just think it's fascinating because this is a measured effect that is based on placebo. Right. They basically put a fake BCI on them and said, this will help you make decisions. <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, simplifying it here, but it's, that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because if they did that to you or I, we'd be like, how? Show me how that's going to work, because that cannot work. How are you putting, mag is it, is it got magnets? What, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. 
it was in so what the research has found the individuals with high expectation of the technology so the the people who believe this technology would work would engage in risky decision making uh, i don't know if you are more knowledgeable about technology does that because if you believe that was a true brain in uh, computer interface you'd have been like that's not the way it works that that's just not it or i have enough knowledge to go we ain't got that yet that just cannot happen so we've got a higher knowledge base to work from however if you just like willfully yep that's going to work possibly the same person who same time people who think that ai is going to cause the end of the world then maybe does that lead something else to their character i don't know is weirdly we were talking about dunning kruger is that Dunning-Kruger effect in action? So you've actually got, you've, you know how, because everybody uses their iPhone now or their Android, what other phones are available. You use your phone now without really thinking about that technology, about things like voice recognition. We use voice recognition now without even thinking about all that sort of stuff, about how it works and the nuances of accents and things like that. And it, I was given a presentation a couple of weeks ago about my, my career and stuff. And one of the early things I worked on was early voice recognition. It was only just at the where software voice recognition was just starting to come about. And I was doing some evaluation versus hardware and strong accents. You had to do loads of training for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I had to do loads of software. It basically was, it was a heavy software learning as well. Whereas now we just completely take it for granted. We don't even think or that the, um, that the, voice recognition will work we might have to speak a bit clearly every now and again but in in the large scale it's going to work so <laughs> our expectations of these technologies yeah it, that, that's a really interesting piece do we don't necessarily understand how it works therefore we should assume it's going to happen sorry the whole voice to, to the voice to text tech actually failed us last week on the show and i won't say exactly what happened but oh yes i thought that was amusing <laughs> but let's just say i said this is human factors cast really fast and it came up with a bodily yeah. fluid <laughs> anyway I had to change the transcript on that one i don't know if i caught it everywhere but anyway that's that that is a good instance though because like a lot of the time i just take that transcript and throw it in there i say oh good enough I think the people listening to it or reading it, the the hearing impaired who are reading it, they'll get the picture and that's not the greatest. But for a small team that we have, it's the best we can do. And at least we provide some accessibility there. I think there's a lot of interesting. I spoke about hearing impaired just briefly there, but here's another example. I brought up cochlear implants earlier, but what about hearing aids as like an augmentation tool? That's not like full hearing replacement, but it's supposed to help you hear a little better. Imagine you have one of these devices in your ear and you think it significantly improves your hearing. And so you start to maybe engage in riskier behaviors like going out into more noisy environments like traffic or social settings where perhaps there's a lot going on. It might be information overload with that hearing aid in and it doesn't actually help you parse through any of that information. It just amplifies it and doesn't do a whole lot of good. There's examples that exist today like that. And like you said, with the maps, even even with exoskeletons starting to be more commonplace in like big box home improvement stores or even on, on construction sites or manufacturing facilities for large aircraft, right? There's the exoskeletons are starting to become more commonplace in these types of environments. And when you have, like you said, a person who does this type of thing at work and then comes home and says, yeah, I can do that. And then they misjudge what they're capable of doing because they're so used to having that suit on. But it's even... 
it's a little bit different from that because if you think about that example, it's almost trying to translate their knowledge about what the exoskeleton is capable of doing. They might like to me, a clear example of this might be like, okay, if this is improving my ability, I might be able to work longer to do this. And that's a riskier option is to work longer hours or to lift something slightly heavier than maybe the exoskeleton is approved for or something along those lines. That might be a good example of something on a in any of those environments that I just described. I don't know. I think the I, I brought up policy earlier, and I think that has a lot to do with the way in which we think about this. And that's more geared towards the AI side of things. So we can hold off on talking about that if you had any other places that you want to go. Because once we go into the AI bubble, I think we're going to stay there. That's just I think that, yeah, no, we invariably do. The one thing I did want to bring up was around the methodology itself, because this Columbia card task that they use to measure decision-making risk and behavior, I'd never heard of it before. And so I was quite interested to dive into that. And basically it's a, uh, you get 32 cards face down in front of you and you can turn the cards over and you, it's a basically, do you think you want to get a good card or a bad card? And you get certain points that makes it go either way. And so you get a good card, you gain a point. If you open up, if you get a, a bad card, you lose loads of points and therefore lose around. And you keep on going and it, it, they use that to evaluate your appetite for risk. So that was quite cool. And that is probably, a, that sounds or looks like a tool I might use later on and put that into my little deck of tools I want to try. Because I don't know whether you do this, but I have tools that I, tools and methods that are my go-to almost my go-to toolbox. But in the back of that toolbox, I have a bunch of stuff in there that actually, this sounds quite cool. I want to give it a shot should the opportunity come up. And I have a few of them that it's like, aha, this is, and I had, I, I was writing a proposal the other day that had exactly that. And I was like, ah, I get an opportunity here to play this card effectively and put this in the proposal. And unfortunately, I didn't win the, we didn't win the work. But this looks like one of them sort of tools that, that could be quite interesting, but and also easy to, or relatively easy to use that you could do with a little training, therefore something you could pull out for that type of thing. So I thought it was just worth highlighting that as a as a methodology that might be useful to to have a go at. Yeah, I think that's a good call out. Columbia Card Task, established tool for measuring decision-making, risk-taking. So yeah, good point. I think I almost think about this problem. I think about this as a problem where uh, you could, it's like, how do you solve the snake oil problem? And it's a digital snake oil problem in a lot of ways now because there's AI for everything. And I think that's where the article is hinting at that these AI technologies are going to promise us solutions for some of these things that we're looking to solve. And it's not necessarily going to work the way that we intended to. And therefore, we as a society will engage in, in riskier decision making. And I think there's this is a very like cyberpunk theme, but there's this larger discussion around what does it mean to be human? And I, we've had these types of conversations before. I think even in our in our roundtable with Frank a couple of weeks back, we had talked about augmentation and who's how what makes you human <laughs> in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so is augmenting yourself with a phone or anything. I know we've had this conversation before is augmenting yourself with a phone or any of these tools human or is that a fundamental human trait is to use tools to become better. When I think, I don't know, like just thinking about sort of what this means for the impact of technology on us as a society to 
to make good decisions. It worries me a little bit in some ways when you have when you have lawmakers, decision makers using some of these tools and they don't but understand that, what's going on behind the scenes. So yes and no. I guess what is the impact of decision making and risk taking? Because we all even without technology, we all take risks. By getting out of bed in the morning, that's a risk. Crossing the road, that's a risk. Going to work, that's a risk. There are risk across everything that we do. Some of it we just implicitly, without even thinking about it, we our brain, our body, it, it does a, its own type of risk assessment. And we all have different risk appetites. So is this just bringing some people who would maybe not be quite so risky bringing them up a level or would other people who are truly risky make them worse okay let me let me rephrase right i guess the issue here that i think needs solving is when you have cases where taking risks and decision making are mission critical okay let me put it that way i tend to put lawmakers and politicians in that bucket. So let me just bring a couple of examples here and I'll bring up one in healthcare. Okay. Imagine you have a patient using some sort of AI powered monitoring device or some sort of service that monitors your data, right? And it promises to enhance their health by tipping you off to some things that are happening like irregular heartbeats or irregular pulses or that that technology exists, right? So if these patients believe that these devices are significantly improving their health, are they going to engage in riskier health decisions like neglecting their checkups or ignoring minor symptoms that might actually be symptomatic of something greater um, Mm -hmm. because they have these services that says, okay, your weight is this and your pulse has been this and your resting heart rate is this and you've gotten this much activity and here's other data that we have on you. It's clear that you're healthy. Don't need to go to the doctor. And do will they engage in that risky decision to not go to the doctor? That's one example. But I can also think of other things where even at, so that would be like mission critical for you as a person to survive. <laughs> but I think there's even a, like a livelihood mission criticality when it comes to job performance, okay? Can you imagine if employees with access to AI technologies, if they basically, if they look at that productivity tool, okay, and and say, oh, my productivity is enhanced because I have this AI tool and I'm getting pretty close to the mark here as it impacts me with the podcast, (laughs) okay? (laughs) My productivity is enhanced because of this tool. If they believe that these tools are significantly improving their productivity. They, uh, there, there might be more and more tasks that are mm-hmm. taken on to make the podcast better and bigger. And yes, uh, even the actual impact of the tools might be minimal. Like that's what I'm trying to say here. No, that's true. And I think the, but again, the, the one thing that we haven't explored is type of risk. Because as you quite rightly say, there is there's personal risk around, do you go and get advised? Do you? The other health example is if a medical professional is pre- presented with information, mm-hmm. says, should you pr- do an intervention or not? Would I be, am I more risk or am I less risk averse? More risk averse? Yeah, less risk averse. If the risk is, or if the consequence is actually fairly minimal. So if I'm playing a game that is the Columbia Cartas, for example, Chances are I would be more, I would engage, I'd be less risk averse because when it's just a game, there's no impact. 
if I'm flying an aeroplane or I'm making a critical decision on a nuclear reactor or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, my risk appetite is going to change. And therefore does, I wonder if from this study, whether that goes all the way through, whether the Columbia Car Task outcomes do maps itself well onto riskier decisions or decisions with bigger potential outcomes or bigger potential negative outcomes. Yeah, it'd be curious to, <laughs> to put pilots. In <laughs> okay, we're going to strap you into this BCI. You're flying the airplane, and Nick's going to enhance your ability to fly and land this airplane. Don't worry, it's fine. But we've done the ethics. We've done it. It's fine. Now, is it? It's fair criticism of the study, isn't it? Just to quickly run some run through some of them. It was a fairly small sample. We had twenty some participants, so your general the ability to generalize the findings is fairly minimal, but it's still interesting, and that's why I quite like some of these studies. It does throw stuff out there for you to uh, to play with, um, and it didn't consider the actual individual differences between people on their personality traits or any other individual differences that they had. So worth highlighting that, but still. I think we've come. We do come to a quite strong conclusion that uh, that we do think it's quite an interesting study. Um, the research is required, of course. Yeah, the research is required, and I'm sure we could carry that out. And uh, we've also found out how much you've expanded your uh, your repertoire of tasks just because the AI has made. I've gone the other way. That because the AI is available to to do it, it means I can get stuff done quicker. But I haven't really expanded what I do, except I have taken on another podcast. But apart, but that, but we just won't talk about so that. So you doubled your work. You've so doubled I, your work. Yeah, that's just ruined my argument. So I'll just take that back. But but I did it knowing that the tools were there and I haven't I don't use them to the same extent. In fact, do I use AI at all for that second one? I don't think I don't think I use it at all in, in Pulse whatsoever. Because we don't do because I don't do shorts for it. Yet. Do you do show notes? Nope. We freestyle. <laughs> oh I, I, yes. We do a vague skeleton. So we write okay. down the dates. But that's it. All it's all it's pure Ben and Barry goodness. <laughs> Yeah, I still think there's a couple other examples out there that we can talk about. I think you bring up some good criticisms about the study. And I think to lead, I guess, into some of the solution spaces, I brought up policy earlier. I'm not going to talk about that a lot, but that AI Bill of Rights or just some way consumer protection is huge. And so being able to advocate for the consumers being able to advocate for the end users at a policy level, I think is going to be huge when it comes to these decision-making because there's laws around pilots and there's in, in mission critical decision-making roles, there are laws. And when I think this starts to bleed over and the importance of policy starts becoming more relevant is when the outcomes of those risky behaviors then start to impact not only yourself, but society negatively, then I think there's going to be a larger call for it. And I think we might be there with some of this tech. I don't know. That's a really cynical look, but... I, in previous times when we've talked about this, I've been very much against doing a policy-driven approach because I think it would restrict how we could use this technology. However, with some of my more recent explorations into the different type of people who are using this stuff, and some of the examples that we said where people don't necessarily understand 
that it's either still in research, it's in development, that it might not be actually giving you the truth, that it's based on a statistical model, et cetera, et cetera, and that it's not actually a person hiding in your phone. There's an element here that people need to be safe from themselves, which is why we produce policy. And I'm now coming to the conclusion that I might have to agree with you that, yes, I think there is a strong need for policy, not least of which, which was an adaption of, you remember the last the conference that we live streamed um, from HFES last year, where we had Professor Paul Salmon on, and we interviewed him, and he was talking about artificial general intelligence. And the thing that sort of chimed together with me fairly recently was, A, this idea about we needing to think about the policy and how we do that, but B was a was the example that he gave us the when the general the, when the artificial intelligence realizes that if we realize how intelligent it is we could switch it off that it pretends to be dumb and therefore could it also do the same with our policy if we're using if we're developing policy chances are policymakers will be using ChatGPT to help de- help develop some of their stuff yeah. therefore if we start using AI to help craft some of our policy, will the AI be able to look at that and go, hold on a second, you're talking about about me. (laughs) I'm not crafting that sort of policy and therefore be able to do it. And yeah, we might have strayed into, I I think maybe a couple of years ago, we'd have have said that's straying into the ridiculous, but is it? (laughs) I think you're right. I also wonder too, this just came up. I'm wondering too, like this was one and done task in like they, put this thing on and try to and they were engaging in more risky behavior and so i'm wondering like what are some of the longer term effects if like I, i've used chat gpt now and i know what its output is and i know what to use it for and what not to use it for will that understanding come over time for most people or is it going to be one of those things where you have to have a certain level of knowledge about the underlying systems or the way it works before you start to understand the limitations or aligning your expectations with the limitations of whatever tool that you're using, right? So I'm wondering if long-term effects go away or are mitigated by learning through use, right? If, if let's say in this Columbia card task, right? Let's say they, they engage in more risky behavior and then ultimately they realize that they were engaging in this risky behavior. And so they tailed that back a little bit. It still doesn't offset the initial risky behavior, but does it normalize over time? And that's another question, right? And we've done exactly that with, we'll go back to ChatGPT as the example. The more, because of the interface that ChatGPT has, it's literally just a, it's a chatbot, chat interface. And it's taken us a while to work out, and it's taken anybody who picks it up, a while to work out what the capability is, which you do by trial and error. Say, can you do this? Yes, I can. Here you go. That's not quite what I wanted. Can you rephrase it to do X, Y, Z? Can you give me some input? And then as people experiment with it, they find it can do different things. And so you build up your own mental model of what it can actually do. The kind of things that I've been getting it to do are different to the kind of things that you've been getting it to do, which is very different to some of the things that the in the Facebook group groups I'm members of. <laughs> yeah. They've been trying to do very different things and then wondering why it wouldn't work. Yeah, I think it's it, you've, you almost build up your own use case for it to a certain extent. And then it's only through discussion that you, you've shared with me some of the things that you've done with it. I've shared with you some things I've done with it. And we're like, oh, can it, oh, will it do that? And and you play around with it and go, oh, crikey, I didn't realize we could go down that route. So how can we, the, how can we make some of that happen? I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how some of this is, how it evolves. And as you say, how we train for it, 
because again, human nature is we find shortcuts. It's a whole premise around human error, isn't it? And all that sort of thing that actually in this type of thing, we will try and make our lives easier for ourselves and with good intentions, well-meaning, but we'll try and find time, short time to do the job. We'll find AI's ways of doing that in ways that we that weren't intended. So yeah, we'll see where we go with that. Yeah. Our final thoughts here, Barry, is the tech placebos, AI technology, the hype, help. Which one is it? Oh, it's definitely, I think it's the right, it's the right argument. A further research is required. Interesting paper. Well done. Seven out of 10. All right. Yeah, for me, I think lots of interesting examples that we could look to. I think we we talked a little bit about healthcare. We talked a little bit about construction, but I think some of the more interesting things are around education. We didn't quite get to those talks, and that's especially relevant as you start getting to that misinformation piece that we talked about earlier. I don't know. I think this is a good story. I think this is a good conversation. I'm excited to see follow-up to this, longitudinal, to see what do these... Yeah behaviors normalize over time and i think that'll round out our discussion so thank you to everyone this week and especially our patrons for selecting our topic and thank you to our friends over at alto university for our news story this week if you want to follow along we do post the links to all the articles on our weekly roundups and our blog you can also join us on discord for more discussion on these stories and much more we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, all access patrons, Michelle Tripp and Neil Ganey. Really appreciate all the support you guys give the show. And today, we'd like to talk to you a little bit about Human Factors Minute. You heard it there in the little advertisement 
for the show. But why listen to a polished advertisement when you can listen to us read a dumb thing here live? Hey there, all you audio aficionados, podcast people, and uh, earbud enthusiasts. Yeah, that was a bit of a stretch. Anyway, are you amped to chat about human factors? I bet you are. And we have just the ticket, or should I say, just the podcast. Now, now, don't click, don't click away. Don't go away. I hear you saying, but hold on. I've already spent countless hours diving into the world of human factors. I can't spare another minute. My fellow factoid freaks, I promise this is a minute well spent. We have 181 episodes in the bag. That's almost four hours of pure unadulterated human factor fun and the best bit each episode is shorter than it's quicker than popping a bag of popcorn so if you're a fan of fun size facts you can tune in while you're stuck in that morning coffee queue why wait join us on patreon for the complete collection of human factors minute did i oversell it okay folks let's get learning and laughing (laughs) that bit's really long barry (laughs) and remember it's all about having a hoot getting smart Okay, I'm always embarrassed with these. These are dumb. <laughs> I would start doing these. It came from. It came from. Yes, all right. Switching gears, getting to It Came From. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a like to help other people find this content. All right, the first one up tonight here is from the UX Research subreddit. This is by user choicead968. Is product management cannibalizing UX research? I'm a job seeker in Europe. I've noticed a trend where product management roles are taking on more user-focused responsibilities in small and medium companies. Is this trend cannibalizing UX research jobs? What is your opinion on the shift in job responsibilities? Barry, what do you think? So possibly an unpopular opinion, but I think it's a good thing. When you look at what the product manager is, particularly in the like the product owner role in, in Agile as well, they should be engaging with our human factors E type, user research type stuff, because their job should be to be advocating for the user to make the product the best it can be. So I'd see it as part of their job role. But a part of it is also learning about their limits and therefore where can we pick up? Where do they need to call in the experts? What can they do themselves, as, especially in small jobs? Uh, sorry, in small companies and micros, you've generally got people who take on many roles. I run my own small company. I do every, I've had to learn how to become HR, how to become finance. And you don't see anybody else moaning about me picking up them sort of jobs. In, in even in a human factors role, I do pick up other roles. I manage projects. I'm project manager. I'm program manager. I could be a project finance as well, if, I, if I'm having to pick up that bit. So we don't really complain about it the other way around. We're flexible. We, it's just the value that it is. So that's a very long way around saying, and I think it's true. I think it is happening, but I don't think, necessarily think it's a bad thing. Yeah, I see a lot of UX research go into product management roles. And I think this is generally seen, it's being more and more seen as a move by a lot of UX researchers. And I think I think there's a few things that happen when they assume those roles. I think, one, you start to see this trend where PMs now suddenly care about the end user more. And that's because you have some of these research roles moving into product management roles. And I think what's happening, at least in, in that perspective, is they're still, they still advocate for the user. But I think what's happening is that in product management roles, they might not have the full gamut of tools that the UX research team might have. 
or the UX research role might have. And so they're ad they're advocating for the user, but do they have that full data set? Do they have the full uh, picture of what's actually happening? I'm speaking about this from more of a larger company, like tech company type structure where they might have preconceived notions and they're acting on those as if those are well-researched facts about the end user. And so it, it can be dangerous in that sense. Now, that's not to say that years and years of practice and understanding conventions and standards are not going to go into the development of a product. But I'm saying that there might be some shortcuts being taken without having the full access to research toolkits that is important for some decisions. So I think the other thing that happens with this is that the role shifts from being user focused to being product focused when you're a product manager and in that role. And so you have a different mindset and it's inherently you think about the user in a different way in relation to your product. And I think this is different for smaller companies and mid-tier companies. And it's interesting from that perspective too, because everybody wears a lot of hats and even startups, right? You see this. And ultimately, does it matter if it's segmented? I don't think so. I think what matters is that the the end product keeps the user's needs in check. And if that's a product manager doing it, okay. If that's a user research doing it, okay. It, it just ultimately... As long as it, as the as long as the users being taken care of. Okay, let's get into this next one here. This one's also on the UX research subreddit by Abgi two thirty seven. Dysfunctional project. Do I just take the money for now as a contractor? Should I continue working on a dysfunctional project and take the money even though I'm not enjoying it or seeing any real improvement, or should I look for something else? take the money actually that is my first comment do you need the money if they're paying and you're not having to do very much and is that enough for you by the fact that you're writing the question you i would guess not otherwise you wouldn't be questioning it i would caution that the perfect job doesn't exist the one that is the completely employs human factors and all that sort of stuff in the right way and in the way that we would like them to from start all the way through the project I've never seen one yet. And actually, for me, that's half the fun is fixing some of this stuff. We have a very simple motto in my business. and We evaluate every single job by this. And we don't just do it at the beginning. We do it throughout the project. Because if one of these, if it stops working at any point, then we try and it's, we need to fix it. And that is around having each project. Whenever we're saying, do we need to bid for something or want to work for something? Is it interesting work? Has it got nice people? And does it pay money? It has to have all three of them elements in it for us to actually go and do the job. The money bit, sometimes it doesn't have to be much it, as long as it, pay, it pays the bills, but it's got to be interesting work and you've got to enjoy what you're doing. And it's got to, you've got to be working with nice people. Without them things there, then you don't want to get up in the morning, therefore it's not life-fulfilling. So given that they're asking the question, I would say it is time to move on. It is time to go and find something else because you wouldn't be asking the question otherwise. However, if that does take time, effort, and money to do that. So make sure you, if in this contractor role, because everybody thinks that contractors get paid shed loads of money all of the time, despite some of the realities of life, get the make sure that you can afford to take time out to find the next job that you want to do. So that's, yeah, get out of there. What, Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's an interesting calculation here. What's the cost of happiness to you? Because, and is that, can you find another job that, pays you the difference between 
the cost of is the difference in this job between another job the cost of happiness and how much does happiness mean to you how much does job fulfillment mean to you quantify it put a number to it that's an interesting thing an interesting approach that you can take to this because if it's worth it to start the process of trying to find another job trying to find more work is that worth it to you to go through all that and get paid less at the end of the day i will matter depending on the person but i'm just saying do that because if you can put a number to it, then you can quantify your happiness. And at least within a role, is this yeah. fulfilling to you? Is this enhancing your skills? And what is the cost of enhancing your skills over time? I think there are some ways to get around this like rut that I would call this person in. Projects change over time. And so there's a very, I wouldn't say strong possibility, but there's a possibility that the project changes and People become more receptive. I think some of the issues that they have is that the research isn't being done quite as frequently. And so things might change. You might get more and the requirements might change over time. So even though it's not great now, it might be great later. You never know. And then the last piece of advice I will say is that if you're not feeling fulfilled, but it does pay the bills and it's what you need versus getting paid less, I think there's other ways to stretch your passions and to get involved with a passion project, either volunteer, do something like that, or or build a passion project and work on a set of skills that can help you at least feel good about some of the stuff that you're doing. So there's a couple approaches there. I think this is not a great situation to be in. I feel for anybody in this situation. That kind of sucks when you're making so much money that you don't want to leave because you're unhappy. That's some advice. Take it or leave it. All right. This last one here, also from the UX Research subreddit by Toolthropologist. Has anyone done pro bono work while job searching? What was your experience? They write, I'm job searching and feeling anxious about not being able to use my skills. Can somebody share their experience doing pro bono work while job searching? I miss doing work. I want to build my portfolio, but I don't know where to start. Barry. So on the one hand, you can say that you've got less spare time and yeah, the pro bono work is useful to build experience or build, build new skills or keep your skills going. But it does, when you're doing that sort of stuff, it takes your time away from actually job searching, job hunting, doing them skills. Because actually that's your job at the moment is to get a paying job. And pro bono in itself is different from you doing it your own pet project. Your own pet project, you can pick up, put down, you're the boss of it, that's fine. But when you're doing pro bono, just because you're giving it for free doesn't mean that the standards go away, doesn't mean that the requirement goes away. You still have to see it through because you will use that as part of your portfolio. You're probably going to want a reference for them. Or if it all goes badly, that will still reflect badly against you. Whether you've done it for free or not, it doesn't matter. So you still got standards and you still got your own personal pride. So just be careful with pro bono work. It's not... And I see that slightly different pro bono work is again, slightly different from just pure volunteering work as well. So it is, it's, it can be a double-edged sword. So I would be focusing your time, getting your job searching, right? If you're having spent a long time job searching, there is something going wrong with your job application methodology, about what you're putting into your CV, how you're doing that sort of stuff, rather than what is in your portfolio, I would suggest. Nick, what do you think? Pro bono work is hard. And it's, I think what ultimately comes down, is this, is this, what are the requirements of the project? Is this something that you have signed a contract saying that you will do? 
Or is this just something that you've approached a company and say, hey, I'd love to do this thing for you? Because there's a difference in the way that you approach those types of projects. I think for a company, it's less risky for them to say, okay, yeah, go ahead and do this thing. If you're going to do it for free, go ahead and do this thing. And then when you come back to them, they can either take that feedback or not. Now, do you really have a portfolio piece if they haven't implemented that feedback or if they haven't implemented that project? I would argue, yes, you do, but it's not as strong as a case as if they actually take that, run with it, put it into their, like, let's say you're doing a website for a local a local coffee shop or something, right? You could give them that website. Are they going to take it, use it? Maybe. If they do, you have a stronger case for a portfolio piece. If they don't use it, then you have a less strong case and it just looks like you've done this as like a school project or something. And so it's hard. And But on the other side, if you sign a contract for something, then you're absolutely right, Barry. You're taking away time that you would be elsewhere, else searching for a job. I don't know. It's hard. I would say maybe find a passion project instead that you can use to build skills and feel like you're you're not atrophying. So <laughs> that's it. All right, let's get into this last part of the show. We just simply call one more thing. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? So this week we've had nice weather. It's been really sunny. It's been really, in fact, too sunny. I'll come back to that. But it's been really warm and it just, you forget through the winter months and through the early spring months when it's still wet, it's still rainy, it's still windy, just how uplifting getting outside and getting some vitamin D, getting getting into the sunshine is a just such an uplifting thing. So I thoroughly enjoyed. We had a bank holiday weekend where where normally in England, in the UK, when it when we have bank holiday, it normally rains because everyone's off. And it didn't. It was beautiful. It was sunny. We had barbecue. We did all that. But then there is a the underlying moral of this story of really sun, really hot sun when you're sat out in the back garden, maybe taking your t-shirt off to whilst you're reading a book, wear sunscreen because okay. I didn't and I regret my life choices. I took a riskier option, non-AI supported. I just forgot. And I now am doing a very good imitation of a lobster. You can argue that sunscreen is human augmentation for protecting from radiation poisoning. Which is what that, sunburns are. Which is true. And I didn't augment myself with my sunscreen. And I now do regret my life choices. Sometimes it goes the other way. For me, <laughs> I had a weird thing happen where I was losing a lot of drive and a lot of steam and a lot of motivation. I think some of it's probably coming back from vacation related, even though that happened two, three weeks ago. And, and then I found my pen. I found a pen. I have a pen on my desk. And this is like neurodivergent thing, but like having a to-do list is just, it's turned me into a pr productivity machine. It's amazing that just having a pen and paper, and if it's not in the right place, then it's it's gone. I've lost it. It's never going to happen. And then as soon as I find it, I, I start writing stuff down and then boom, I have something to cross off and actually go and do. And uh, I don't know if you lost your drive, maybe find a pen and paper, put it on your desk. <laughs> That's all. Okay. All right. That's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, enjoy some of the discussion about human augmentation. I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 273, where we talk about how a third robotic arm might be the future of human augmentation. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can join us on our Discord community or join us on our pre- or post-shows. 
during our Thursday live broadcast. For more in-depth discussion, like I said, Discord community, our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, stop what you're doing. Leave us a five-star review. We love those. Two, you can always tell your friends about us. Let them know that these cool guys talked a whole 30-something minutes about human augmentation and AI and stuff. And then three, if you have the financial means to, just a buck gets you in the door with our Patreon. We really appreciate all the support that comes our way because it goes right back into the production of this show. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about, I don't know, what to do with ChatGPT for less risky options? If you can find me all over social media, particularly on Twitter at BazzamusKK, or if you want to also listen to interesting interviews with people in and around the Human Factors community, you can find me on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, which is 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord server and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. 